Hey, it's Brian. Before we get started, just a quick note that this episode and the other five in this special series discuss Santa Claus, but not in a way that younger listeners could appreciate. If there are little ones within earshot, save this for later. Thanks. Sometimes they do have good intentions. But the problem is that in order to do something good that doesn't exist, you have to do a lot of smoke and mirrors. You have to... um, put up a front. I think that a good con artist, if they could control everything, they would like everyone to win. But the problem is that not everyone could win, but they definitely have to win. This is Javier Leva, and he knows a thing or two about con artists because he's talked to lots of them. He's the host of the podcast Pretend Radio, which is all about con artists and the people they affect. When we met John Gluck in Chapter 2, we met an ambitious man eager to run to where he thought lightning was about to strike. Someone who wanted to make a name for himself. He was learning the ins and outs of running a massive operation. He was working the media and building relationships in New York City's power set. At most, you could say he was opportunistic. Someone who saw a chance to do well for himself by doing good for others. It's something philosophers call enlightened self-interest. But what happens when it gets harder and harder to tell where the enlightenment ends and the self-interest begins? What happens when an act of charity starts looking more and more like an elaborate con? What happens when you fake it till you make it, but then just keep on faking it? In the case of John Gluck and the Santa Claus Association, there really are no easy answers. This is Brian Earle from Christmas Past, and we're about to follow the meteoric rise of the Santa Claus Association after the spectacular success of its first season, and see how a little taste of fame and recognition, and a small glimpse at just how easy it could be, would take the man behind it into the spotlight, not to mention the world of penthouse offices, Broadway theaters, public mudslingings, and boy detectives. Along the way, there's help from a credulous news media barely willing to question any feel-good story for the holiday season. And at the center of it all, let's not forget, thousands and thousands of children's letters to Santa Claus and the unprecedented endeavor to get them all answered, no matter what it took. These guys play with facts, and they make their own reality, and they make their own narrative. It doesn't really matter what the truth is. If I say it with enough confidence and you believe it, that's more important than if it's really real. This is My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper. A special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. Chapter 3. From a Cave to a High-Rise In 1913, John Gluck and his Santa Claus Association did something that no one had done before, that barely seems possible now. With a lean crew of volunteers and borrowed office space in the back of a restaurant and no real budget to speak of, they got 17,000 children's letters to Santa Claus into the hands of donors willing to answer them, all in just the month of December. Let's break that down. Assume that we're talking about December 1st through the 25th, Christmas Day. 25 days. That's 680 letters a day on average. That's bananas. The public and the media and, of course, all those kids just went wild over this. And the next season plays out like one of those montages from an old movie when the action really starts picking up. 
with one spinning newspaper headline after another. Announcing some new success, some strategic partnership, some photo opportunity with the powerful and famous, because everybody who was anybody in New York City wanted in on the action. And a big part of the reason that was true was the man behind it all, and the fact that he wasn't above a little truth-stretching, sneaky tactics, and naked opportunism to get there. You could never really trust him, but you always had fun, and that was kind of Gluck's way. That's Alex Palmer, the New York Times best-selling author of The Santa Claus Man, on which this story is based. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, the Santa Claus Association had outgrown its small headquarters in the back of a restaurant. It was time for something more fitting. The attention that, it, that the association got and Gluck's ability to sort of promote those that were around him entice others to, to want to get involved. So with its second year, the Muschenheim brothers, who were proprietors of the Hotel Astor based in Times Square and one of the jewels as, as far as the New York hotels at the time, they had this wine cellar that was available. It was really a pretty impressive looking space, even though it was subterranean. That new space in the wine cellar would earn the affectionate nickname of the Santa Claus Cave. Now remember, the Santa Claus Association wasn't a charity. They were just serving as a middleman, a clearinghouse for matching letters to donors. But there were some basic operational costs like stationery and postage. In the previous season, some donors made small cash contributions to cover these costs, which were roughly $1,000 in today's money. And those donations quickly came rolling in again for the 1914 season, including from a surprising source. The Brooklyn Postmaster, out of his own pocket, paid as well as did his men. And even on top of that, Ralph Pulitzer Jr., Joseph Pulitzer's grandson, cut a check that same season for the entire cost of the postage. In fact, there was really no shortage of people willing to donate money. But the thing is, he didn't need money. like. Not at all. He just kept asking for it anyway, and usually pulling numbers out of thin air to justify asking for it. They were operating at a surplus. Theoretically, they shouldn't have had to fundraise at all. They continued to ask for funds even when they should have had their coffers full. It didn't make sense, the numbers that Gluck was saying. They claimed that they needed money for 50,000 stamps, and then I think it was just like a day later, he was saying they needed it for 100,000 stamps. So it seemed to be that their need just kept growing. Now the problem is, and this is something we'll come back to again later, there wasn't very meticulous record-keeping going on here. Again, not a charity, not bound by any of the rules that apply to charities. We could give Gluck the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was building a war chest. Maybe he had a secret plan in the works. We don't know. But one thing we do know is Occam's razor, which tells us that the explanation that needs the fewest new assumptions is likeliest the correct one. People were practically tripping over themselves to help Gluck, to write fawning pieces in the newspaper, to donate time and money and resources. Maybe they got swept up in the feel-good story, or maybe they just wanted to stand in his light. It doesn't matter. Given that we've come to know Gluck as a climber and a hustler, I think when it comes to understanding why he kept asking for money, we can put two and two together. Here's Javier Leva again. A con man usually has a mark. And, and that's what's different about Gluck, is that his mark is everyone, really, everyone who has money. It's everyone who, who celebrates the holidays. It's everyone who, who feels charitable. 
Gluck got a taste of the money and he just saw how easy it was. All he had to do was ask. All he had to do was ask. It's not even clear if he would have had to fudge the numbers, but he did it anyway. In 1914, Gluck moved out of his bachelor apartment at the back of a restaurant and into a new place near Broadway. And that allowed him to more easily hobnob with the theater crowd. Through his connections and newfound reputation and now his proximity, he could approach people like the Broadway producer Albert Woods and ask for his help promoting his group to theatergoers. He told Woods that he could use the exposure because, and of course this is 100% false, the Santa Claus Association was facing debt. Here's Alex Palmer again. And Woods came on the idea of doing a benefit show of this performance uh, that he had coming up where for one night on December 22nd, all the proceeds from the night's show would go to the Santa Claus Association. They even had a couple of the actors from the show came to the Santa Claus headquarters and they were joined by King Baggett. And then Gluck, he suggested... Uh, the, the actor dressing up as Santa Claus himself, and the two of them then headed over to the central post office and were photographed out front picking up Santa's letters. King Baggett was also known as the most photographed man in the world. And if the name doesn't ring a bell, well, that's because it isn't 1914 anymore. Never let anyone tell you that fame isn't fleeting. That's Alonzo Duralde. He's the film reviews editor at The Wrap, as well as a podcaster and the author of the book, Have Yourself a Movie, Little Christmas. Because, yeah, nowadays, King Baggett is not exactly a household name, but at the turn of the century, in the early years of cinema, before talkies happened, he was huge. He was indeed known as the most photographed man in the world, also as king of the movies, and this is my favorite, the man whose face is familiar as the man in the moon. He and a woman named Florence Lawrence were technically the first movie stars. They were the first people whose faces were used in advertisements to sell a movie. So it wasn't just like, oh, exciting Western action or, you know, hilarious Keystone cops. No, no, no. This is a King Baggett movie. You want to come see this because you know who this guy is and his name is going to sell tickets. The arrangement with Woods worked out so well that Gluck next helped Woods put on a week's worth of promotional showcase performances at the Hotel Astor, upstairs from the Santa Claus cave. It was the sort of thing attended by society ladies, with speeches in between the musical numbers, including one by Gluck about the Santa Claus Association. And in the audience was a young, aspiring actress, two decades Gluck's junior, named Simona Boniface. Here's Alex Palmer again. She was interested in Gluck and apparently found his talk compelling because they ended up connecting after that. And she soon became involved in the Santa Claus Association. And uh, the two struck up a relationship at that point, and, and uh, it wouldn't be long before they would actually end up being married. We'll have more to say about Simona and her and Gluck's marriage in a later chapter. For now, let's get back to Gluck and his scheming promotional tactics. Theater fundraisers were one way to increase exposure, and attracting high-profile people to lend their name was another. And to that end, Gluck started using a tactic he learned from his new job with the United States Boy Scout. Remember from Chapter 2 that Gluck started officially working for the Scouts as a fundraiser and PR man while the Scouts were volunteering their services to the Santa Claus Association. One of the things he learned from them was that in order to get high-profile people to lend their name and credibility, all you had to do was offer them a vanity title of honorary vice president. It just was sort of an irresistible idea that 
was hard not to sort of want to be part of. It's just a simple concept, and sure, who doesn't want to support Santa? Governor Martin Glynn of New York happily agreed to it, as did Isadora Sachs, a Saxon Company founder, uh, and a number of other prominent people, and that list grew. It was an easy thing to say yes to, so at first it was actually uh, legit, but it would be later that they would start loosening the qualifications where it would be merely sending a letter to somebody. And if they didn't explicitly reject the idea of being an honorary vice president, their name would be added to the list. Meanwhile, you may also recall that the Scouts and the Boy Scouts of America didn't get along. It was for a number of reasons, but largely because the Boy Scouts of America thought that their rival's name was too similar to their own. It made fundraising and communications in general a problem. And now that Gluck was on the payroll, he started using his media skills to punch back. Like when he spread a rumor that the Boy Scouts of America wouldn't admit Jewish or Catholic boys on account of being sponsored by the YMCA. It's hard to tell if Gluck was just doing the job he was paid to do, or if maybe he enjoyed this kind of public confrontation. There is reason to think that maybe he did. Because as the Santa Claus Association's star continued to rise, Gluck started to become boastful and critical of other charities. He would publicly call them out for being less efficient than he was. He'd even call for some of them to be investigated. Now, if I were an English professor, I'd point this out as an example of what's known as foreshadowing. But we'll get there in due time. For now, let's get back to the 1914 Christmas season, where Gluck was taking a cue from the American Red Cross. One of the things they did was to commission a prominent artist to design commemorative Christmas stamps as part of their promotion. Well, the Santa Claus Association had plenty of money at this point to spend on something like that, so Gluck followed suit. That was a painting by the the painter Angus Peter MacDonald, who was sort of um, an earlier version of Norman Rockwell at that era and was very popular. His paintings would sell for thousands of dollars. So he painted this one of of the, the little boy that encapsulated the sort of cheery holiday scenes that the association was trying to help generate throughout the city. None of this sat too well with the Red Cross. Gluck was diluting their promotional efforts by copying them, so they issued a cease-and-desist order. But even so, by the time they had ceased and desisted, they'd already gotten some positive attention for it in the press. Not only that, but the artist also donated the painting to them, which they displayed in their main office. And that was all great, while it lasted. As touching as that painting might be, uh, it actually led to one of the, the sadder moments of the group's second season, because... One day, Gluck came back to the office and noticed that the painting was gone. But Gluck turned to their army of U.S. Boy Scouts to help them try to solve the crime. So they sent out all these uh, uniformed boys to pawn shops and other outlets throughout the city to see if they could track this down. But they came up empty-handed. So even after searching for a couple weeks, they were unable to find it. Their efforts did produce one result. It just wasn't one that they wanted. One reaction they did get was a uh, stern pushback from the Boy Scouts of America, which wanted to make sure the press did not confuse that it was not the Boy Scouts of America that were going around trying to find this painting, that this was the U.S. Boy Scout. And because of this, once again, the tensions between the two Boy Scout groups comes up. But feuding Boy Scout groups notwithstanding, and believe me, this won't be the last we hear of that, 
the story with the painting does resolve. A couple months into 1915, a bedraggled-looking gentleman arrived at the headquarters and had a wrapped package under his arm and gave it to the staffer that was there at the time. And when Gluck returned and opened it, he found the, the painting, along with a note describing that he had taken it and had just been racked with guilt for the last month or two and finally had gotten up the resolve to return the painting. So the story did have a happy ending. Maybe a little too happy, too neat and too perfect. Because, of course, Gluck saw to it that the happy ending became yet another feel-good story to keep his name in the papers. To read the letter that the thief wrote, it sort of stretches credibility a little bit. It just seems a little too, too perfect, tied up in this nice bow. By the end of the 1914 Christmas season, the Santa Claus Association had topped itself in every way compared to the first season, including getting more than double the number of children's letters to Santa Claus answered. But John Gluck was just getting warmed up. By the next season, 1915, they had incorporated and set up a Canadian extension group. It was now the International Santa Claus Association. Other local chapters opened up in Boston, Cincinnati, Atlanta, Baltimore, Buffalo, and additional local field offices opened up around New York City. That season, they also took out a billboard right at the top of the corner of 7th Avenue and 53rd Street situated next to a billboard for Budweiser beer and Blue Valley butter. It featured a picture of Santa Claus and the slogan, Make some little kitty's heart happy for Christmas. We collect thousands of letters from the post office each year. Come get one and play Santa Claus. Filling request direct. But the next great phase for Gluck and company came when Gluck convinced an executive from Woolworths to let them move their offices to the 30th floor of the new Woolworth skyscraper which, at the time, was the tallest building in the world. The Woolworths building is, in many regards, really the iconic building from this particular period. That was Greg Young. He's one of the hosts of The Bowery Boys, a podcast about the history of New York City. Because it represents both technological marvel and also excess. It was more than just a skyscraper. This is another big piece of our story, and one whose significance will come to light very shortly. Back in Chapter 1, we looked at the many ways that New York City was changing and shaping Christmas. But this was also a time when New York City was changing and shaping itself with ambitious and innovative architecture. Starting in the 1870s and 1880s, there's so much money that New Yorkers decide that they really want to compete with Europe. That they want to become this city that is as grand as Paris and London and Rome. A city like Berlin or a city like Rome, shameless places of public wealth were on display there. So in a way, like this also spurs on technological advances. And you want to show off what a grand city you are. You have the advent of the skyscraper starting in the 1870s and 1880s. Try to imagine living at that time, seeing impossibly tall buildings like no one had ever seen before seeing grand train stations and public libraries and government buildings and performance spaces coming to life right in front of you. It was an atmosphere of awe and wonder, a time where crazy, unimaginable things were happening, where the impossible was suddenly possible. And knowing what we know about Gluck, it should come as no surprise that that atmosphere of possibility gave him an idea. Because at the end of the 1915 Christmas season, Gluck made a crazy, unimaginable announcement of his own. 
The Santa Claus Association was going to have its own architectural marvel of a headquarters building. A big, grand marble building. A real-life Santa's workshop right in New York City. A national monument. A cathedral to the Christmas spirit. It was his biggest ambition. It was his biggest announcement. It was just his biggest lie. You've been listening to My Dear Santa, a true crime Christmas caper, a special six-part miniseries from Christmas Past. It's produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. We had music in this episode from Dave Depper, Blue Dot Sessions, Scott Joplin, and Pottington Bear. The entire series is available now under the regular podcast feed for Christmas Past, so look for Christmas Past wherever you get your podcasts. And the other episodes for the season are coming soon, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. And if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people find the show by telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? Thank you to Javier Leva and Greg Young. Thanks also to Alex Palmer and Alonzo Duralde. You can find out more about everyone involved in the series and discover bonus content over at christmaspast.media. And you can join the conversation by searching for Christmas Past on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and by using the hashtag MyDearSanta. 